Welcome to the Campbell Conversations. I'm Grant Reher. My guest today is Dartmouth College Professor Randall Balmer, who rejoins me from a recent appearance on the program where we were talking about sports and religion. Professor Balmer studies and teaches about religion and is the author, among many other books, of Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory, A Journey into the Evangelical Subculture in America, which was made into a PBS documentary series. He's with me here today because he has a newer book out on a similar subject titled Bad Faith, Race and the Rise of the Religious Right. Professor Balmer, welcome back to the program. Grant, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for coming back. So let me just start, as your book does, with a brief clarification of two important terms. First, what is evangelical Christianity? A lot of uh, scholars and theologians have rather complicated uh, definitions for this. I try to keep it simple, and I have a three, three-part Trinitarian definition. <laughs> evangelical is somebody who takes the Bible very seriously as God's revelation to humanity, uh, even to the point of literal interpretation, although I also want to point out that most people who claim to be literalists engage in what I call the ruse of selective literalism when it comes <laughs> to the Bible. Second, an evangelical is somebody who understands the conversion experience or the born-again experience as being crucial for the shaping of his or her faith. And this comes from the third chapter of St. John, when Nicodemus, the Jewish leader, visits Jesus by night and asks how he, Nicodemus, can enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus replies, you must be born again, or in some translations, born from above. And this conversion experience is very often uh, traumatic, doesn't have to be, but it, it tends to be rather dramatic. Dramatic is probably a better word than traumatic there. Uh, but it's a, a, it redefines the, the direction of a believer's life. And finally, an evangelical is somebody who takes seriously the mandate to evangelize or to bring others into the faith, uh, what we would call probably less charitably uh, proselytizing, bringing others into the faith. As for the religious right, the religious right is really kind of a generic term for uh, a broad spectrum of organizations and individuals who tend obviously toward the right of the uh, political spectrum uh, and who in some way identify themselves uh, either explicitly or implicitly as uh, as evangelicals. And this is the movement, as I'm sure we'll talk about, that uh, emerged in the late 1970s and has uh, utterly reshaped the uh, political landscape in this country over the last uh, four decades. Uh, I also, uh, let me point out too, that I, I as, as a believer myself, uh, somebody who grew up as an evangelical and and, and uh, uh, very much appreciates that background as a person of faith, uh, I find the term Christian right deeply, deeply offensive. I struggle to find much that I would identify as Christian in this movement, and so that's why I prefer the term religious right. Okay, thanks. Yeah, we will get into that. So as you just uh alluded to, the, the main part of your book really takes on what you characterize as the traditional narrative of the origins of the religious right. And then you offer a more historically accurate version. So if you could also briefly summarize the traditional narrative and then tell the correct story. Sure. I, and we have to establish the background first. The, the, uh, the fact that evangelicals were not politically active in the middle decades of the 20th century. That's not to say that evangelicals didn't vote. Many of them didn't, did. Many of them did not. 
Uh, they certainly were not organized politically in the middle decades of the 20th century, roughly from the Scopes trial of 1925 until Jimmy Carter's campaign for the presidency in the mid-1970s. Uh, evangelicals were, on the whole, politically quiescent. Now, there are certain, you know, um, uh, firebrand uh, <laughs> preachers who were talking about political things, but in terms of organization, they simply were not organized politically until the mid-1970s. The standard narrative, as you asked, uh, is that uh, evangelicals uh, were shaken out of their apolitical torpor with the Roe v. Wade, v. Wade decision of January 22nd, 1973. It's at that point, according to the standard narrative, which was has been repeated uh, hundreds, if not thousands of times, evangelicals decided they could no longer afford to be uh, politically quiescent. They had to organize in order to uh, address this uh, abomination of legalized abortion made possible by the Supreme Court in 1973. So that is the standard history of the religious right, a repeated uh, ad nauseum by people like Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, James Dobson, and, and many other leaders. So what is the actual story? <laughs> well, let's first, uh, if I may, uh, address what I call the abortion myth. That okay. is the, 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 the fiction that evangelicals became politically active in direct response to the Roe v. Wade decision. And, and here, uh, Grant, I'm just going to kind of tick off just a, a few bits of evidence on this. That I, I don't have time. We don't have time to get into the whole argument here. But uh, let's begin with 1968. There is a gathering organized by Christianity Today, Today magazine, which is really the flagship magazine for evangelicalism, and another evangelical group called the Christian Medical Society to discuss the ethics surrounding abortion. And this group meets over several days, 26 heavyweight theologians from the evangelical world. At the end of their gathering, they issue a statement saying, we can't agree on the ethical issues surrounding abortion, but we think it should be made available and, and accessible. 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention, not exactly a redoubt of liberalism, passes a resolution calling for the legalization of abortion, which they reaffirm in 1974, a year after the Roe ruling, and again in 1976. In 1973, even James Dobson, who later, of course, became an implacable foe of abortion, acknowledged that the Bible was silent on the matter of abortion, and therefore it was plausible for an evangelical to believe that, quote, I'm quoting Dobson here, a developing embryo or fetus was not regarded as a full human being. Hmm. When the ruling was handed down, W.A. Criswell, one of the most famous fundamentalists of the 20th century, issued a statement applauding the Roe v. Wade decision. And finally, again, this is a compressed version of, <laughs> of the argument. Finally, Jerry Falwell, by his own admission, did not preach his first anti-abortion sermon until February 26, 1978. That's more than five years after the Roe v. Wade decision. So this is why I call it the abortion myth. Uh, it's the fiction that evangelicals mobilized politically in the 1970s in opposition to abortion. So 
Let me take a break here. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and I'm speaking with Randall Balmer, the Dartmouth College professor of religion and the author of Bad Faith, Race and the Rise of the Religious Right. Okay, so you've laid the groundwork. So what is now the actual story of how the religious right got started? The, the religious right got going in reaction to a court decision, but it was not the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973. It really was a 1971 decision by the District Court for the District of Columbia in a case called Green v. Connolly. And uh, I have to back up a little bit to provide some historical context here. Uh, the uh, the deeper historical context was, of course, the Supreme Court's Brown v. Board of Education ruling of May 17, 1954, that called for the desegregation of public schools in the United States. And then in 1970, 1964, the Civil Rights Act signed into law by Lyndon Johnson that forbade racial segregation in public institutions. What happened for this case, Green v. Connolly, is that in the in Holmes County, Mississippi, the first year of desegregation, the number of white students in the public school system dropped from over 700 to 28. The second year of desegregation, the number of white students in the public school system dropped to zero. At the same time, three segregation academies, that is whites only church sponsored schools opened their doors and applied to the Internal Revenue Service for tax-exempt status. A group of parents in Holmes County, Mississippi said, this isn't right. And so they filed suit. That suit was joined with another suit, made its way through the court system. And on June 30th, 1971, the District Court for the District of Columbia ruled that any institution that engages in racial segregation or racial discrimination is not, by definition, a charitable institution. And for that reason, it has no claims on tax-exempt status. Well, you can well imagine that got the attention of people like Jerry Falwell, who opened his own segregation academy in 1967 in Lynchburg, Virginia, and Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina, which famously throughout its history uh, refused to admit African-Americans to the student body out of fears of racial mixing or miscegenation. As the IRS began to enforce that decision over the course of the 1970s, that further riled up evangelical leaders. And that, uh, according to multiple sources, and I'm happy to you know, list some of these sources if you want, you want to get into this, that was the catalyst for evangelical political activism in the 1970s had nothing whatsoever to do with opposition to abortion. It was a defense of racial segregation in evangelical schools. Mm. So uh, there's a there's a counter argument um, of sorts. Well, it's it's I guess I guess it's just an argument of the so what variety that, that you take yep. on directly in your book. And so I'll summarize the argument and I want to hear your response to it. But it's the argument that, OK, even if evangelicals and you argue in your book that they were kind of I'm going to use the word duped, but, you know, to some extent misled uh, to accept what becomes a religious freedom argument in favor of those segregated religious private schools, that even though evangelicals, you know, got dragged into this, 
that nonetheless, they thought that they were pressing for religious freedom rather than racial, seg- racial segregation, or at least most of them. And, and then later, the abortion issue does become front and center for evangelicals and the religious right. So, so what does it matter that the origins of the religious right can be traced to the segregated school issue if both of those things are true? You, 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 you take this on. Yeah, I, I think it, I, it, that's a great question, Grant. And, and uh, I, I think it does matter. I, my sense as a historian is that unrepented racism tends to fester over time and it, uh, it, 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 it doesn't go away. And I think uh, to anticipate where this conversation is going, I think it, it made itself evident in the 2016 and again in the 2020 presidential election. But the immediate issue in the 1970s, as you alluded to, was that uh, the leaders of the religious right, really led by Paul Weyrich, who's, uh, I, I call him the architect of the religious right, and I think that's that's, that's a fairly accurate uh, description. Uh, Weyrich was was a really a cagey political operative, and he was uh, he was around a long time. He he certainly did a lot for the advancement of uh, political conservatism uh, in this country, but he recognized early on that a movement built on simply on opposition to racial um, desegregation probably was not going to catch on as a popular movement. And so what he very deftly did, and this is this is brilliant. I mean, I, I my hat's my hat is off to him. Uh, this was this was brilliant. He said, well, this is not a matter of defending racial segregation. This is religious freedom, you know, thereby writing one of the pages for the modern religious right playbook, right? We see in this uh, the, uh, the Colorado cake maker case and the Hobby Lobby case, you know, this is an assault on religious freedom, all the while conveniently neglecting to mention what we both know, and everybody knows, at least who thinks about it, tax exemption is a form of public subsidy. So yes, these institutions are indeed public institutions because they are supported, albeit indirectly, by the taxpayers. But Weyrich very, very cleverly shifted that argument away from a defense of racial segregation to a defense of religious freedom. And who is against religious freedom? I'm certainly not, right? Mm. Uh, that resonated. So that was the first step. And the second step, I, I expect, is going to be anticipated by your next question. <laughs> <laughs> Which we will get to after the break. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and my guest is Randall Balmer. He's a professor of religion at Dartmouth College and the author of a book titled Bad Faith, Race and the Rise of the Religious Right. And we've been discussing his book. So before the break, uh, Randall, you you exactly right where I'm going with my next question. It is it is a question about really what's the last chapter of your book or the toward the end of your book. And it's where you bring your story up to the present, as you've already alluded to, in particular 2016, 2020 elections. And you 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 write about the effect of the religious rights influence among evangelicals in the context of these past couple of presidential elections. And you express puzzlement in many ways, over how evangelicals could vote so heavily for Donald Trump, given his racist statements and actions. And so here's the 
here's the thing I want to push back on a little bit with you and get your reaction to this. You do only look, though, at the Republican side of the equation and what's going on in conservative circles. But the electoral choice for evangelicals, however, is not how much do you like Donald Trump and what don't you like about him? It's do you prefer Donald Trump to Hillary Clinton? Do you prefer Donald Trump to Joe Biden? And I wanted to ask you, isn't it true, would you say, among Democrats and, and certainly among a lot of liberals, that there has been at times a pretty open denigration of evangelicals and of white Christians. I mean, I'm thinking about Obama talking about how people get frustrated and mad. They don't know what to do. They turn to the Bible or Clinton's basket of deplorables. I mean, these are elitist messages suggesting that, particularly with a lack of higher education, that these people are somehow less than. And, you know, I think those things matter too. People remember them. Um, And I'm wondering whether this is kind of a long preamble to I wonder whether the voting phenomenon that you are struggling over in 2016, 2020, isn't more about political polarization um, than it is about the active backing of racist rhetoric or even just a tolerance for racism. I wonder if you could reflect on that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think I think you make a good point, Grant, and I, I wouldn't deny that at all. I think, um, you know, after the 2016 election in my sort of uh, armchair pundit <laughs> uh, trying to come to terms with it, I, I identified three reasons, I think, why such a, an overwhelming number of evangelicals supported Donald Trump. And by the way, I don't think, um, you know, I, I don't find any of the reasons sufficient <laughs> in many ways because I think it was so... Uh, so baffling on the face of it. Yeah, this is a movement that for decades has claimed to be about family values. And, I, you know, I'm so, sorry, you simply can't make the, the case that that uh, the Republican nominee in 2016 and 2020 was uh, uh, was uh, an emblem of, of family values. I, I, I just, I, I reject that argument <laughs> out of hand. But uh, my three reasons in, in my sort of amateur um, analysis, and I, I, emphasize it's, I emphasize it's amateur, I'm not a political scientist, I think one was precisely what you just said, that is the longstanding uh, denigration of Hillary Clinton, that goes back decades, of course, well, all the way back to the, to the 1990s and, and, and Bill Clinton's presidency. And I think many evangelicals, including members of my own family, couldn't, couldn't fathom the possibility that they would vote for Hillary Clinton over anybody else. I mean, right. you know, if, if Lucifer were on the ticket, I think that <laughs> they, they, would, they would think twice, perhaps. But otherwise, you know, it was just that, for them, it was just that uh, settled uh, a matter. I, I, th- I think the second reason uh, is that uh, evangelicals over the last uh, half century or so have spons- have responded very, very well to the rhetoric of victimization. Uh, that is to say, they see themselves as victim, and that, in many ways, goes back to our previous uh, the previous part of our conversation when Paul Weirich encouraged them to see that they were under assault, that their religious mm. freedom was under assault by uh, any sort of um, enforcement of of anti segregation um, um, laws in in this country. Uh, and in my adult life, no one I've encountered speaks the rhetoric of victimization more fluently than Donald Trump. Now, it's always about him. He's the victim, obviously. But still, I think there was some sort of resonance 
on the part of uh, evangelical voters with this rhetoric of victimization. And then the final reason, and this uh, gets, I think, more to the point of the book, is that I think that there are some resonances of uh, and vestiges of, of racism among evangelicals, um, which is not to say, and I've never argued, people have um, accused me of this, but I've never argued that evangelicals are racist. Uh, and first of all, it's not for me to, to make that judgment. But the fact that their political movement was born out of racism, out of defense of race, racial segregation, I think, and the fact that uh, that uh, these evangelical leaders, these religious right leaders, have not repented of this uh, in any meaningful meaningful way, I think makes them susceptible to this. And by the way, as I argue in the in the in the book, I think the bridge figure, and this was something of a revelation to me as I wrote the book, the bridge figure here is Ronald Reagan, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. we can talk about that if you like, but. Uh, uh, and I'll just cite the, what, to, what to me is the, is the most compelling uh, example of that. Ronald Reagan in 1980 chose to open his general election campaign for the presidency on August 3rd, 1980, in, of all places, the Neshoba County Fair in Philadelphia, Mississippi, the place where 16 summers earlier, members of the Ku Klux Klan in collusion with the local sheriff's department, abducted, tortured, and murdered three civil rights workers. And Reagan was the master of symbolism. And lest anyone miss his point on that occasion, he invoked the age old segregationist battle cry, I believe in states' rights. Mm. Now, uh, I'm sorry, you can't tell me <laughs> that that's not, uh, a racist dog whistle uh, back in 1980. And I can give you other examples as well, but I think in many ways, Reagan is really the transitional figure mm -hmm. between the origins of the religious right and Donald Trump. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. And my guest is Dartmouth College professor and author, Randall Balmer. We've got about maybe five minutes left. I wanna uh, ask uh, two questions here at the end. Uh, and and leave you some time to to develop your answers a bit on each of them, but I do want to get to both of them. This is a question about something that you say at the very end of your book. I'm going to quote part of your book here, but you ask, you first ask a series of questions about current policy debates, and then you end your paragraph with this. Evangelical positions on poverty, racial justice, women's equality, or access to health care should surely be calibrated with Jesus's instructions to care for widows and orphans, to feed the hungry and clothe the naked, and with Paul's declaration that in Christ there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. Now, you seem to be suggesting that evangelicals should be liberals there. I just want to know if that's that that's the case. Is that is that where you you intended to go with the book? And just a couple well, of minutes. I, I think yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, that I think a statement needs to be uh, qualified and nuanced a bit. But uh, yes, <laughs> I <Okay>. do. <laughs> um, and, and and I and I say that I I argue that not only from the New Testament. Uh, in Matthew twenty-seven, it's pretty clear about what Jesus expects of his followers. Uh, they're to visit 
the, the prisoners, take care of widows and orphans, uh, welcome the stranger, which certainly has implications for foreign policy and, 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 and immigration for that matter, you know, recognizing the complications of borders and so forth and uh, generally to care for the least of these. So uh, yes, I, and there was of course other examples I could cite as well, but also I want to call on the, what I consider the noble tradition of 19th century evangelical activism. Now, I'm willing to acknowledge as a historian that evangelicals didn't always get it right. There were, for example, Southern theologians who defended slavery. I'm not going <laughs> to shy away from that or run away from that statement. Nevertheless, if you look at the overall record of evangelical political activism in the 19th and even into the early 20th century, and you calibrated that along a political spectrum by today's standards, it would lean decisively toward the left of the political spectrum. Now, well, and I'm, 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 I'm talking to you from a hotbed of that. In yes, exactly. With the Absolutely. Yeah. Upstate New York was, was exactly the hotbed. I mean, it was called the burned over district right. because of uh, because of evangelical uh, passions in, in, in upstate New York. So let so, me let me jump in and make sure that I get this last quick because it's a question about you. And it was my burning question when I was when I was reading this. You dedicate this book to your classmates in your childhood evangelical Sunday school. Yes. You write about your own evangelical story growing up. You mentioned earlier in this interview that you are a person of faith. So it, I only have about a minute and a half here, but could you briefly relate your own spiritual story? And I wonder, is this book in some ways a conversation you've been having with yourself? <laughs> <laughs> sure, it is. Yeah, sure. I mean, all all books are autobiography in some one way or another. <laughs> I think you know that as well. But yes, uh, this is... Uh, this book represents the, uh, you know, the toil of trying to come to terms with my evangelical past and, and realizing that I think, um, and, and I try to make this argument in the book, and I hope I do, that uh, evangelicalism has got off, gone off the tracks over the last 40 years. And uh, we as evangelicals have neglected our own glorious past, uh, you know, a more or less a glorious past, uh, you know, with, with with a lot of infelicities along the way. But, you know, we, we really were, this is a tradition that really was concerned with those on the margins of society. And I think we've lost that. And that's, uh, to me, that's tragic, particularly as you see how the religious right has uh, uh, really recast the American political landscape, I think, in the wrong direction. Yes. Mm. That was Randall Balmer. Again, his book is titled Bad Faith, Race and the Rise of the Religious Right. And I can say, having read the entire book, that it is extremely readable, very clear, provocative, and uh, insightful. So, Professor Balmer, it's good to see you again. Thanks for writing this book, and thanks for making the time to talk with me. Always a pleasure, Grant. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media, Conversations in the Public Interest. The Campbell Conversations, Conversations in the Public Interest, is hosted and produced by Grant Reher, engineered by Tom Fazio, assistant producer is Jacqueline Witwicky, and the program is edited by Mark Lefonier. The Campbell Conversations is a joint production of the Campbell Public Affairs Institute at Syracuse University and WRVO Public Media. To learn more about the program and hear previous interviews, visit wrbo.org slash Campbell Conversations.